Hi, I'm Carter Sneed. I'm the director of the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture and professor of law here at the University of Notre Dame. It's a great pleasure again to appear, albeit virtually, for the Cardinal O'Connor Conference on Life at Georgetown University, my alma mater, uh, to talk about the themes of my book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. The book itself makes two claims. One is methodological and one is substantive. The methodological claim is that the richest and most potent method of analyzing matters of public bioethics, and that includes the disputes over law and public policy concerning abortion, uh, which is obviously so important as we mark the anniversary of, of Roe v. Wade. Hopefully this is the last time we have to mark this anniversary with Roe and Casey uh, as, as law on the books, <clears throat> preventing us from uh, caring for mothers and unborn babies and families the way they deserve to be cared for. Um, the argument of the book is, methodologically speaking, that the richest way to understand any area of public bioethics is to uh, apply what I describe as an inductive anthropological inquiry. And that may sound like a, a hyper-technical or highfalutin phrase. It really isn't. It's pretty clear, and I think it'll become recognizable to you as I move through my remarks. An inductive anthropological inquiry is simply asking a question, confronting the law or policy as it exists, so it's inductive, it's not deductive, you take the law as you find it, and then you ask an anthropological question, namely, what is the vision of the human person and human identity and human flourishing that undergirds and anchors the laws and doctrines and policies that are under consideration? So that's the method. That's the methodological claim of the book. The substantive claim of the book emerges from the application of that method to three different areas uh, of public bioethics. Uh, what emerges to, from the surface when you analyze these three what I call vital conflicts of abortion, assisted reproductive technologies, and end-of-life decision-making is a vision of the person that I argue is impoverished and incomplete and insufficient as a grounding for this particularly important area of law and public policy. Um, it is a vision of the person that tracks very closely what philosopher Charles Taylor and and uh, sociologist Robert Bella and others have described as expressive individualism. And I'm gonna unpack what that means uh, as, I, as I proceed through my remarks. But it's suffice to say for now that it's a vision of the person in human flourishing that cannot and does not make sense of the lived experience uh, of human beings and ignores in particular the fact that we are embodied, the fact that we live and die as bodies. And there are certain entailments of our embodiment, such as vulnerability, which leads to our reciprocal dependence upon one another, and our subjection to natural limits, uh, that expressive individualism can't make sense of. And so it's thus not a fit foundation for public bioethics. It's not a suitable normative grounding for the laws and public policies that are supposed to promote our flourishing and to protect us. So, <clears throat> Uh, the framework for the talk is fairly straightforward. I'm going to offer a, a pretty concise definition of public bioethics. I'm going to say more about what I mean about this anthropological analysis of law and public policy. I'm going to unpack for you somewhat this concept of expressive individualism and offer a critique of it as an anthropology and explain why I believe it's unsuitable as a grounding for law and pol policy in this domain particularly because it is, to borrow a phrase from my colleague Alistair McIntyre, forgetful of the body. I will then suggest a, a possible way forward, a, a kind of way to remember the body as an anthropological corrective and talk about the goods and practices and virtues that are essential for our flourishing and our even our very survival as embodied beings. And then uh, I'll 
To make things a little less abstract, I will apply this methodological framework and talk a little bit about the Dobbs case, to talk a little bit about how my analysis applies to the concrete area of, of the law, the jurisprudence of abortion in America, which of course is under consideration by our Supreme Court as we speak. So, to begin with, what do I mean by public bioethics? Public bioethics <clears throat> is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. It is not a mere field of intellectual inquiry. It is not simply reflection and deliberation and discussion of the, um, of the ethical questions that arise from advances in biomedical science and biotechnology. It is, in fact, the point at which the law and governance comes into contact with these questions, in which the law has something to say uh, through its various political branches, the executive legislative branches, or through its judicial branch, for that matter, as we see in the case of abortion, what we're talking about, the source of law is primarily Supreme Court precedent, namely Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So <clears throat> public bioethics is the governance of this particular field of human activity, and it is fundamentally concerned with human vulnerability, dependence, frailty, and finitude. It's about procreation and pregnancy and babies and wasting illnesses and devastating injuries, desperate enrollees in clinical trials, fearful patients, the disabled, the elderly, the dying, and even the dead. Put another way, public bioethics as a field of law and policy is most deeply about the meaning and consequences of human embodiment, the fact that we experience ourselves, one another, and the world around us in and more precisely as living and dying bodies. And issues in public bioethics are manifold. In the early, late 60s, early 1970s, the, as a species of law and public policy, it emerged primarily in the context of research involving human subjects, but immediately branched out into a wide array of hotly contested debates involving things like embryo research and assisted reproduction and human cloning and abortion. As I said earlier in the book, I take up the issues of abortion, assisted reproductive technologies, and end-of-life decision-making, more specifically how the law and policy shapes those domains and the assumptions the law and policy makes about what and who a person is and what and who uh, and, and what persons need for their survival and their flourishing. These are what I describe in the book as the vital conflicts of American public bioethics. So why do I think and argue that anthropology is the right pathway into the deepest understanding and, and, and the path of wisdom for making law and enforcing law and interpreting the law? Well, <clears throat> it's very simple. Law is about and for the protection and flourishing of persons. At its most reductive level, that's what law is for. Law doesn't make sense and is unintelligible and in fact arbitrary and capricious if it doesn't aim to protect persons or to promote their flourishing. That most basically is what law exists to do. And because law is for the protection and flourishing of persons, it unavoidably rests upon usually undeclared conceptions of human identity, of what a person is, of who a person is, what are the threats to persons, what are the needs of persons. And it's not, <clears throat> by the way, necessarily coextensive with the question of when life begins or who counts as a person, although it's deeply connected to those matters. What I'm talking about is something even more basic than that. It is among the class of persons that we all recognize as persons, what are they? Who are they? What do they need? How should the law protect them and promote their flourishing? And because the law unavoidably rests on conceptions, um, prior conceptions about what it means to be and flourish as a person, the richest way to understand the law is, is to ask the question of who and what it thinks a person is. 
And then the next question is, is it right about that? And is the law and policy built upon that presupposition wise and just and humane? So my argument is that in these vital conflicts, in the American law and policy of abortion, assisted reproductive technologies, and end-of-life decision-making, the law gets the question of what a person is wrong. Um, and just to be very clear, I'm not talking about people and their conceptions of, of what a person is. I'm not talking about people seeking abortions or performing abortions or people seeking assisted reproductive technology and, and fertility care. And I'm not even talking about people who seek to end their own lives uh, in those jurisdictions that allow assisted suicide. I'm not talking about the anthropological presuppositions of those people. I'm talking about what the law assumes. And in fact, the problem that we run into is the law drawing conclusions and inferences and, and entertaining presuppositions of what, what persons are, and that presupposition clashing with the lived reality of the very people who are involved in these areas. It's the asymmetry of the law's presuppositions about persons and what the, the lived clinical reality is in these contexts that is the source of the problem, okay? So I just wanted to be very clear that I'm talking about the legal presuppositions of, about, of, of what persons are and what their flourishing consists in. So expressive individualism, is a vision of the person that takes as the fundamental unit of human reality, as the name suggests, the individual. The individual is the fundamental unit of reality, shorn and abstracted from all constitutive attachments, all background conditions, uh, family, tradition, the natural world. Um, anything that is outside of the fundamental individual is external to it and not essential. Okay, so the fundamental unit of reality is the individual, abstracted and reduced to that unit of measure. Okay, um, Charles Taylor uses the helpful illustrative phrase, atom, the atomized individual as, uh, as the fundamental unit of reality and expressive individualism. Um, and this individual is defined exclusively and solely by virtue of his or her mind or will. What defines you and I or defines you and me, is our, co our cognitive activity. Our mind is who we are. Everything else is incidental and accidental, right? Who I am is my mind. Who I am is my will. Um, my body, my relationships, the world around me are all instrumental and accidental. What matters is my mind and my will. So that means that expressive individualism is, to borrow a philosophical phrase, profoundly dualistic. It separates mind and body and defining the and defining the person and make and prioritizes and emphasizes the mind over and above the body. And human flourishing through the lens of expressive individualism, not surprisingly, is is cognitive. It is the exercise of choice. It defines the person as a consumer or a chooser. That's what makes us that's what makes us a human being. That's what constitutes our flourishing. And the highest form of our flourishing is the pursuit of those projects that, that we discover by consulting the interior of our sentiments to reflect on what's inside. Uh, to use Rousseau's phrase, it's the, it's, the, it's the voice of nature from within that we listen to. It's the, it's the voice from inside that is definitive morally and is definitive of what we should do and what we should be. It is not anything that comes from the outside, it comes from the inside. So we sort of consult the interior of our sentiments and thoughts and discover our own authentic, original truths. We express those truths, then we configure our life plan accordingly in pursuit of those truths. And that's what our flourishing is. We are, to use Michael Sandel's phrase, a self-originating source of valid claims. Everything that matters comes from inside. Everything outside is instrumental to the truths that come from inside that configure our life plan. 
Um, this is a profoundly anti-teleological vision, meaning it is a vision that does not believe that there is meaning to be gathered, essential meaning to be gathered from external givens. We don't know who we are or what we should do by consulting the, the, the given realities of our body. We don't know who we are, what we should do by consulting the given realities of the natural world. A tree can't tell us what it is by observing what it is. Nature can't tell us what it is by it. There are no ends. Teleology refers to the ends or purposes of a thing. And, and this is, and expressive individualism holds that, that truth is created from inside. It is not gathered from outside by observing the natural world. And so it's the inner voice that's definitive, not external givens. And the, the image that you see on your screen right now is that of a tabula rasa, a blank slate. And consistent with that proposition is there are no unchosen obligations within the anthropology of expressive individualism. We don't, uh, there's no one who has a claim on me who can make me do anything absent a prior agreement with that individual. And that agreement I will enter into or exit from based on how that relationship or that, that shared endeavor serves my internal, original, authentic truths. That's, that's, the, that's the pole star of my, of my, and that orients all of my actions. And my relationships, including familial relationships, are entered into and formed or broken apart based on my judgment about how it serves the truths that come from inside me. So there's no one who can make a claim on me that I don't agree to in advance. And for that matter, I can't make claims on others absent some kind of transactional agreement. And it regards personal relationships as instrumental and transactional, including familial relationships. And the language of rights, as it's used in this context, tend to be treated as a kind of armor that we encounter one another clad in the armor of our rights, to use a phrase that Carl Schneider from the University of Michigan has popularized in his wonderful scholarship. We are, uh, the world of expressive individualism is a world of individuated, atomized wills seeking to pursue their own unique, original truths. And sometimes they come together in collaboration, but also uh, they can encounter each other in a posture of strife and seek to overbear one another. So um, the idea is that in a fundamental way, the expressive individualism universe is a universe of strife in which atomized individuals are seeking to promote their own goods, to pursue their own original truths, sometimes in collaboration with others, but frequently also in an adversarial posture towards others. And ethics within this framework, as you could probably imagine, is reduced to, the, to autonomy. The principal ethical good is the good of autonomy. It's the highest good to which all others are subordinated. And injustice is reframed as any kind of constraint on the freedom to pursue the projects of my own choosing, to frustrate my flourishing as expressive individualism defines it. And the role of government, and this gets directly into, in, into public bioethics and, and as, as well as social life, is to remove those constraints, public constraints, private constraints, perhaps even natural constraints, or otherwise provide the conditions for the assertion of the unencumbered individual self. So, what's wrong with this image? I mean, it, in some ways it's quite attractive, right? From a kind of um, a romantic, sort of libertarian, flinty, American, individualistic perspective, this is a very, this is a kind of a sexy view of, of, of what it means to be a human being. The individual will bestriding his or her environment, bending nature and the wills of others to his own will or to her own will to realize his own authentic individual dreams. In some ways, it's a very appealing uh, vision, but it is false. And it's false uh, because the, the background conditions for the exercise of flourishing within this framework can only take place 
uh, at a very brief moment in the arc of human development, right? Human beings begin their lives not as disembodied wills bestriding the universe, trying to bend everything to their, to their, uh, to accord with their own unique projects and designs, but we begin the, our lives in a state of utter and complete dependence upon others. And that's because of our embodiment. We're fragile bodies. Uh, that uh, in time that are corruptible and we're subject to illness and we begin life very young and dependent and fragile and all things going as best as they possibly could go. We, we climb an arc of development up to, God willing, an apex in which we are at the height of our powers when we can articulate our own views and pr pursue our own projects and our own goods, sometimes in, in, in communion with others, other times by ourselves. But then immediately upon hitting that apex, we begin the downward trajectory into a state of total dependence once again. So expressive individualism assumes a reality that is at best, for the very most fortunate and privileged of us, an evanescent moment. Uh, and there are, many, there are many people among us in the human family who never reach that ability to do that. Some people who are cognitively disabled, some people who suffer from dementia, some people who, because of their... Uh, socioeconomic circumstances can't can't do these things, right? It's a it's a it's a vision of flourishing for a very privileged few at a very precise moment in the arc of human development, and and um, it ignores uh, the fact that we are, by virtue of our embodiment, mutually dependent upon one another, uh, that we're vulnerable, that we are subject to natural limits, and as Alistair McIntyre, my colleague, says, all human beings, not just some, but all human beings exist on what he describes as a scale of disability. And what human beings need for their flourishing by virtue of their embodiment is not the freedom of the unencumbered will. And therefore, the task of law and policy shouldn't simply be to create the conditions of the application and the expression of that freedom, that very specific kind of self-oriented freedom. But in fact, what people need to survive and flourish as embodied beings are what McIntyre describes as networks of unconditional and uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. And these are composed of people who are willing to make the good of others their own good without seeking anything in return for themselves. We need this for our basic survival. Think about the fundamental network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving as the parent-child relationship. And it's evident throughout life, but it's especially evident at the beginning of a human being's life in which literally everything you need for your survival is provided by your parents. And parents don't do that because they have a contract to do it. They don't do it because they think they're going to get something special out of it. They do it because it's intrinsic to the relationship itself. Being a parent means making the good of your child your own good. And a child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for and provided for by his or her parents. That is, again, intrinsic to the relationship itself. So that network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving is essential for our basic survival. But the broader network is not simply essential for our survival throughout our entire lives, which it is, of course, but it's also essential, I argue, for human flourishing, because what I argue human flourishing is, is not the assertion of the unencumbered will, but rather to become the kind of person who can make the good of another person his or her own good without seeking anything in return. Both because it continues the, 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 the efficacy and the existence of these networks that are essential for human survival as a species, but also because that is what it means to flourish. We are at our most human when we're taking care of each other. And by virtue of our embodiment, I argue more concisely that human beings are made by virtue of their embodiment, as I said a moment ago, for love and friendship. That's what human flourishing is, not the assertion of the unencumbered will. And expressive individualism can't can't uh, not simply understand this normative point, but it can't even understand the, the, the factual 
truth that we all depend on these networks for our very survival. It's unable to recognize the unchosen claims of the weak, including children, including our own children, the disabled and the elderly. It leads to loneliness and dislocation and alienation because expressive individualism doesn't admit of any constitutive relationship, only instrumental relationships. It's death-haunted. Uh, because you are the center of the universe within the framework of expressive individualism, your death constitutes, as Solzhenitsyn said, the extinction of the entire universe at a stroke. And finally, and obviously I think, expressive individualism leads to the erosion of social and familial ties, viewing them all as purely instrumental, not simply as ends in themselves. So, how do we fix this problem? How do we restore an appropriate and true to, lo to, to our lived experience account of anthropology. Well, we begin by to re remembering the body, the goods and practices and virtues for lived embodied reality. What embodied people need are these networks that I've already talked about, networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. So we have to learn to do the things that create and sustain these networks. We need to become these, the kind of person who can make the good of others our own good. And this includes not just learning from our own support by these networks, but also cultivating our memory and our moral imagination to see, to remember our own dependence, to remember that that's what is essential for our flourishing and our survival, but also to exercise moral imagination to imagine our future dependence and also to imagine others who experience the same kind of dependence as we do and to realize that we stand in a particular sort of relationship to them in these networks to come to their aid. And so to shore up these networks, to, to cultivate our own um, our own understanding of the goods that are necessary for this, we have to practice a particular set of virtues. And McIntyre calls a subset of these virtues the virtues of acknowledged dependence, the virtues of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. Um, McIntyre talks about the virtues of uncalculated giving are the virtues of just generosity. Give the practice of giving to others in proportion to their need because of their need, not because you're seeking anything in return. The practice of hospitality, welcoming the stranger because he or she is a stranger, not because we're seeking our own ends. As well as the practice of what uh, is called misericordia, a Latin word referring to the, the practice of making another person's suffering our own suffering. And in the medical ethics context, in the clinical practice context, this means caring for another, trying to heal them or to comfort them or to ameliorate their symptoms or abs failing the possibility of those things accompanying them in their suffering. So that's, those are the virtues of uncalculated giving. The virtues of graceful receiving include, first and foremost, the virtue of gratitude. The recognition, and this requires the cultivation of the moral imagination and memory, the, 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 the sense that we are here because of the extended work of others. We are only here because others made our good their good without seeking anything in return. And that should engender the other virtues, which lead to practices like humility, the ethic of giftedness, the notion that everything is gift. And that we should um, be open to the unbidden, that we should be tolerant of imperfection, and these have very concrete entailments in the context of bioethics, especially as it relates to persons with disabilities, especially as it relates to questions of abortion of children in the womb who have disabilities. Uh, it should, uh, this gratitude should engender, and this, uh, uh, this exercise of moral imagination should engender the good of solidarity, that we are all deeply connected to one another as members of the human family. It should engender the concept of, ex of, of um, embracing the intrinsic equal dignity of all human beings, born and unborn, no matter who you are, no matter what your condition of dependency is, no matter how sick you are, no matter what people think of you, uh, you are all equal in dignity to every other person on, in the human family. 
It should engender the good of truthfulness, being honest with ourselves and others. Ultimately, all the goods of graceful receiving and, and um, uh, uncalculated giving can be understood through the lens of authentic friendship, understood through the Aristotelian sense of uh, making the good of another your own good um, for the sake of itself. And so we practice these virtues by engaging in activities that take us outside of ourselves, that draw our gaze upward from inside. Stop looking inside and look outside to see one's neighbors, one's brothers and sisters, to see how you can be helpful, or to see how you can ask for help. And the paradigm, as I've said before, and this has grave implications for uh, the bioethical questions that I take up in the book, is the paradigm is parenthood. But you, don't, you need not be a parent to be able to practice virtues of, of, uh, of giving and, uh, and, and receiving. Uh, you can also uh, practice that simply by thinking about your standing in the relationship with the human family itself and participating with neighbors and loved ones, especially in what Bella calls communities of memory. Voluntary organizations, associations that place the goods of, of, of the organization, the ends of the purpose of the collective action beyond the goods of each individual member. So, um, let me say a couple words um, to make this uh, a little less abstract. Okay, We've talked about um, the, the, the problem of a bad anthropology and what it can do. Uh, and I think it's worthwhile taking a moment here and talking about uh, the issue of abortion. Since we're talking, since we're gathering together to mark the, uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, uh, in the book, um, I make the case that one of the problems, one of the deep problems, and perhaps one of the um, sources of the error of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey is that it grows out of false anthropology itself. And the false anthropology that it grows out of begins with the very framing of the human question in which the issue of abortion arises. If you read Roe v. Wade and you read Planned Parenthood vs. Casey, what you find is the way the justices and the majority frame the question is a kind of zero-sum conflict between strangers, a woman, uh, and a stranger who is not even another person, but has been deemed by the court to be a sub-personal being. Despite the protestations of the majority to the contrary, the um, in the opinion in Roe and in Casey, the court forbids the governments uh, of the states as well as the federal government from treating unborn children as persons with the rights and entitlements that persons enjoy. They forbid them from adopting, quote, one theory of life to treat the unborn as persons and by virtue of that injunction, declare implicitly the unborn child not to be a person. So the very framing of the human question of abortion as a legal matter is um, is this conflict, a zero-sum conflict among strangers, and prioritizing uh, the, go the goods that are valorized by expressive individualism in, in the woman herself. Of course, it talks about the burdens that the unborn child imposes on the woman in terms of bodily burdens, perhaps even psychic burdens of pregnancy, but it goes beyond that to talk about how fundamentally an unplanned pregnancy will frustrate the woman's, and this especially comes out in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a woman's equal participation in the social and economic life of the country. Um, and and that, that therefore, as a matter of interpreting the Constitution itself, which we should remind ourselves, the goal of the justices in these cases is to interpret the Constitution and to find if there is any restriction in the Constitution that precludes states and the federal government from protecting unborn children as they had uh, throughout our nation's history, especially the middle of the 19th century up until 1973, if there's anything, especially in our Constitution, that forbids 
the uh, government from protecting unborn children from private lethal violence. And of course, there's nothing in our Constitution that forbids that. And in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a perversion and a corruption of our Constitution to read that in to the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which the court does in Roe and in Casey. But, they, but, the, but the presumption is this baby, is, which is a non-person in their judgment, is such an imposition on the woman's freedom to, uh, to pursue the, uh, her own plans as she sees fit in the economic sphere and the social sphere and, and, and disables her vis-a-vis -vis men who can engage in the same kind of sexual behavior and not be burdened in this way, that it must be the case, it has to be the case, that our Constitution offers this fundamental right or this protected liberty interest to women to seek an abortion. It's, and it makes sense if you think about it through the lens of expressive individualism, because if you have two strangers fighting over the bodily resources uh, of a person and the other stranger is an invading non-person, that it makes sense that the court would invent a right to use lethal violence to repel the intruding stranger. But already we've seen that, that it's the very anthropological premises of that framing are false. It is not the case that babies and mothers are strangers. They already exist in a very deep biological and cultural relationship to one another from the very beginning. This is why I think abortion rights advocates really re um, react adversely to the use of the word mother to describe a pregnant woman. Um, because they want to, because mother implies a relationship, right? It implies a relationship to one's children. And they want to suggest there is no such relationship. These are merely strangers who are accidentally co-located in the body of one person, right? And again, that is a kind of abstraction that you could only entertain if you were in the grip of the anthropology of expressive individualism. So an appropriate way to describe the human context in which abortion arises, a way that is sufficiently mindful of our embodiment and all the relationships and moral and ethical, and I would argue also policy entailments that that, that, that requires, is to describe the human context in which the abortion question arises is as a unique crisis involving a mother and her child. A unique crisis involving a mother and her child. And if you describe it in that way, a way that is consistent with the lived reality of human embodiment, the solution to that problem becomes is quite different than a problem of two strangers fighting over scarce resources in which one is a person and one is a kind of invading, invading non-person, right? Um, instead of authorizing one party to use lethal violence against the other, instead, describing it as a, a crisis involving a mother and a child is a summons to everyone in the immediate family, but then radiating outwards from the community and the, even the nation itself and its laws to come to the aid of that mother and child in crisis. If you and I were to hear that there's a mother and child in crisis outside of the building that I'm standing right now, we would stop what we're doing and we would rush out to protect both of them and to surround them with the care and support and love. Any decent society, any decent person would react in precisely that way. Okay? And if you were a lawmaker trying to construct a framework, beginning with that anthropology, your solution looks very different than the one that the court invented and grafted onto the Constitution to solve a relationship of strife between two strangers fighting over bodily resources. So this is just one way to show how bad anthropology corrupts the entire reasoning and lawmaking that follows from it, uh, and how in particular, in addition to the fact that the court announced a rule in Roe and Casey that has no connection to the history, tradition, or text of the Constitution and is not required by prudential principles of stare decisis to, to maintain, they also went off the rails and fundamentally went off the rails 
by embracing a vision of the person of human flourishing that is simply alien to our lived experience. And to begin thinking about this matter correctly, and what I anticipate will happen, God willing, is that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe and Casey, and the matter will return to the political branches of government, where, by the way, it's resolved in most countries around the world without having the matter usurped unconstitutionally and anti-democratically by the by the state by the by that nation's Supreme Court. We're an outlier in that respect. We're not allowed to govern ourselves in this way. And when the matter returns to the to the to the political branches of government, organizations like like yours will come together and for the first time be able to use the mechanisms of law and public policy as well as our own private ordering through our, through our private actions and our indiv on an individual basis and a collective basis to the come to the aid of mothers and babies and to understand and to inform our, our lawmakers that the way to think about this problem is a problem involving moms and babies and families and dads. I shouldn't omit fathers. Moms, babies, dads, and families. And that as a decent community, as a decent society, we have to craft solutions that love them all and that do not tolerate or license or permit the use of lethal violence in this deeply uh, fraught context. So I hope that made the framework that I began with about the importance of anthropology and what it means for law and public policy a little bit more concrete and brought it to the fundamental um, context of abortion, which we're all gathering today uh, to, to think about and to mark this terrible anniversary of Roe and Casey, but doing so in a joyful way because we know, um, especially coming off Martin Luther King's um, uh, birthday uh, this week, that the the arc of justice, the arc of, of history, does bend toward justice, and that fundamental human equality and brotherhood and sisterhood are um, the pathway to that justice. And if we think about the body and families and relationships and unchosen obligations and unearned privileges and uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, we will not only get rid of this blight on the American Constitution but also open the door and a society which actually cares for mothers and babies and fathers and families exactly the right way. So thank you all for your work and for your witness. It's my pleasure and honor to participate in your event. Thank you for inviting me, and I hope to see you in person sometime soon.